and one, and a two, and a three. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. <laughs> this is Podemos Hablar with Chris V and Alex E. We're back. It has been a long time. Yes. Um, let's just say that to start. It has been a little too long. We've yes. been, we've, uh, we've, we're alive. Um, yes, we are alive. We are still here making this podcast. I think the last episode was March of 2021. Yeah, so probably a good, a good, um, <laughs> like, 11. <laughs> no, almost a year ago. Almost yeah. a year. We have yeah, a few yeah. months for a year. Yeah, we don't, we don't do math well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And that's why we're going to talk about writing, not right. math. We're going to talk about writing. Um. And our experiences, um, writing some poems and writing some some other things. I think I speak for both of us in saying that we both identify as queer Latinx writers. Or if we don't identify as writers, we identify as people who write who are also queer and <laughs> Latinx. And so we kind of want to um, talk about those experiences with y'all today. And maybe even share some of our works. Um so yeah, I think we will get into our personal backgrounds with writing. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I can start. Um, I'm in my fourth year here at the University of Iowa, and my major is English and Creative Writing. Well, I'm in this major, I don't know if I consider myself a writer, um, but I have been writing since probably like like middle school, when I really think about it. Um, probably like age like 12 or 13, I started writing. Um and when I feel like I really started to get into into maybe writing more seriously for myself or like uh, using writing as an outlet for myself, um, I was probably in high school. And now I'm here at the university and I've been writing since um, on and off. Uh, it's not my favorite thing to do now, I will say. Um, and I will say that college also made me write less. Um, than I was before. So that's kind of interesting, but I definitely now only write for school and not for myself. <laughs> um, but there are times where I pick up a random, I don't know, a random notes app in my phone and I'll write stuff and I'll keep writing and it'll be really long and I'll be like, how did I get here? Um, so I am still writing, but just when it comes to me, I think very naturally. Yeah, so... I started writing when I was, like, in elementary school. Um, growing up, I had a really bad speech impediment, and I just had a lot of troubles communi communicating verbally. And so early on, like, writing was an avenue to express myself. And I remember just, like, writing short stories with some of my friends and it being a way of, like, community building. Um... Later on, I think I gravitated more towards poetry, and right now I just kind of write exclusively poetry. Um, and it's really just a way to process maybe things that are going on in my life. I think I um, write when I need to is how I would summarize it. I don't study English. Well, I have an English minor, but that's not my... That counts, that counts. <laughs> that's not my primary field of study. But yeah, like sort of like Chris said, I don't actively write. It's just more when I feel the need to, when I need to process some emotion or some event that happened. Yeah. I really struggle to sit down now and just like, I want to write something. Right. I can't. Right. I can only do it when it comes to my head. And that's why I mentioned like the notes app, because I'll usually be doing something and then I'll like, oh shit, I gotta write this down. Um, or like I'll hear something 
and it'll turn into something else. Like, I'll hear, like, someone say something out loud, um, and I'm like, for some reason, that, like, whatever they said will resonate with me, and I'll write it down, and then just keep writing based off that. No, exactly. Because of how it hits me. <laughs> and I think, I don't really identify as a writer, because I associate writing with one-off things, versus being a writer is stuff you're, like, perpetually doing like that's your thing that's your career i don't know that's what you do every day but maybe that's just my different approach to it i can't write every day like writing poetry for me is a very emotional experience and i'm writing stuff as like a queer latinx person and bringing up honestly a lot of trauma and so just doing that regularly that would be way too much so again i just write when i need to and maybe i don't see myself as a writer but I also think if you're writing poems, you're a poet. If you write a play, you're a playwriter. So I think just even even the act of writing um, makes yourself a writer. Yeah, I just wrote a play, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's not going to be seen by anyone. But I think that I can call myself a playwriter now because of that. Like, you want to share what it's about? Just a quick oh, story. Oh, yeah. It's called, <laughs> I just um, think it's interesting. It's called Cynthia, and it's about three women who murder um, a husband um because he's abusive he's physically abusive to cynthia and the play takes place when cynthia's daughter is 16 and she's wondering um who her dad is and then eventually it gets like told that she ended up killing her husband but in order to survive it was definitely a moment where where she feared for her life and she needed to do what she needed to do um and i was raised by primarily latina women so i think a lot about how they impacted my life a lot, so I definitely wrote um, my family into it a lot. But it was fun. Fun to write. <laughs> fun to get out. Yeah. I mean, as Alex mentioned earlier, I feel like um, talking about how it's really hard to write sometimes, it's just so, it can be really difficult to conceptualize, like, our pain, I think. And, like, but that's also, like, our only way to do it sometimes, or, like, only way to, like, relieve that pain is to like explain it in a way that's something that i do with a lot of my poetry as well um uh, and i know i mentioned like playwriting other things i've written um fiction as well but i'll be reading two two poems um later on and the both of these poems really stemmed from like pain um and like things that i've experienced being queer and latinx and i think that's the only way i know how to like talk about it is through writing um yeah no very similarly for me i feel like writing is a way to move on whether i've written stuff like addressing sexual assault bad relationships family trauma and in a lot of way it's it's a way to put words to emotions and experiences in a way that like almost makes it more real or you have to sit with it in the process of writing it in a way that can be really productive for me at least in the sense of understanding maybe what went on and also moving past that um yeah and i think that's important as um a queer latinx person um specific specifically relating to some of my identities i think it's been a way to help develop them if that makes sense like can conceptualize what those identities mean to me um just to be like 
for a while, I definitely wrote around being trans, if that makes sense. Um, I would, like, hint at it, like, you know what just poets do, like, imagery or um, metaphor, like, figurative language that maybe, for me, I saw as being, like, yeah, this is representing my experience as a queer, non-binary, trans, Latinx person, but maybe not actually saying it. And then I think over the years, as I've grown more comfortable through writing, I think I now um, am willing to say that more directly in my work. And the thing, the piece I'll be sharing later on, um, it's very explicit. And um, I think that's just an exercise of being more honest with myself. And I think my writing and my poetry gets more honest as a reflection of my queer Latinx identities when I'm more honest with myself. And I think we got to be honest with ourselves when we're writing, even if we're not writing about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I guess I think it's a way of like confronting like the issues that maybe we're experiencing directly. And I think like you mentioned, like you can use metaphors and other figurative language, but I still think you're confronting it. And even like you said, like even if it wouldn't make sense to other people, like writing isn't necessarily for other people too. And that's another thing I feel like I want to talk about when it comes to writing. Like, I think that's what college did to me, made me, made me conscious of like who's reading everything I'm writing, which I think was kind of damaging to me um, because it, I think it's, it stopped my creativeness to an extent. But I really think writing a lot of the time is about confronting emotions directly too. Right. And I think the act of poetry writing for me is a, deeply like individual thing I do not write this stuff with the intention of oh I'm going to share this with my poetry class I'm not going to like publish it the, just the initial act of writing poetry is like like I said like a sort of way to self-heal but like Chris said even if you know it's going to be shared it's going to like change the way like you might change a word or a phrase or a line or even in introducing and explaining the poem because I've done like creative writing classes and even how I talk about it might be different just knowing that there's like an audience to that. And I think, um, like Chris mentioned, it can be sort of like damaging in a way. It can kind of move yourself away from the purpose of why you're writing in the first place. So now um, Chris will actually share some of their poems um, Chris, do you want to... Yeah, um, so I'll be reading two of my poems today. Um, they're both a little older, but I definitely hold them in my heart pretty high. Um, <laughs> they are very special to me, and I wrote them, I think, at a time where I was really trying to, to, to understand my identity, and it was my first year away from home. And away from my family and I think that was something that uh, was really needed for me in order to like understand my identity but I'm gonna read you two poems um, the first one is called lift and I'll just read it quick lift yes I'm in the lift on the way to a gay bar a place where I won't be called fag a place where I will be called spick I'm not picky though at least I get some by some I mean I get to look at dick for me it's weird my Latino cock is what they call it. Are you cut? Mmm, I love uncut. Thank you for the laugh. I'm here. And then I'll just jump right into the next poem, which is I'm a La Chico next. My dad's brown skin shines wherever he goes. 
My mom's white skin is pale yet lovely. She's like her mom, but not like her dad. He's like his dad, but less like his mom. Closer to my tío. We all look different. My skin is my mother's. My nose is my brown dad's arching towards the floor. My hair belongs to no one. A curly round afro. We all look different. I don't know what I am. Negrito, like my grandmother calls me because of my hair. White, brown, beaner, spick, wetback. I don't know what to call myself. All I know is that I'm a lost chico next. Oh. <laughs> um, thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. Right. And I, I'm a lost Chicanx was published in a very prestigious <laughs> student magazine called Metal Magazine. Um, you can read it at middlemagazine.com. Shameless plug for Chris. <laughs> and there's two other poems in there as well um, <laughs> that I didn't read out today. So I guess if you do want to check it out, there's some more poems there. I like I mentioned, I wrote both these poems my. Freshman year of college, so three years ago, yeah, three years ago, um, in a collection of poems, which had um, probably about 10 poems total, all the poems centered my identity uh, as a queer Latinx person, and they were all super, super meaningful to me. Um, some got posted and published, like Alex mentioned, um, some are still hiding, like Lyft. Lyft was um, one that I've never posted or shared anywhere, but well, yeah. What I really appreciate it is I think it's really speaking to the experience of queer Latinx people in the eyes of specifically white gay men. Um, and the racism, xenophobia that they experience in these spaces that are supposed to be welcoming for queer people. But I also appreciate the line where you said, I'm not picky though, at least I get some. By some I mean I get to look at dick. Like the desire to have those sexual experiences trumps the racism you might experience there. Which is maybe not not a good thing per se, but um, I yeah. think it speaks to what queer Latinx people are going through when they enter queer spaces that if I want to have sexual relations, if I want to have like a queer experience, I have to go through racism, xenophobia, all the things that queer Latinx people have to go through. And in those spaces, like you're reduced to whether or not your dick is circumcised or not. And that's, you're not seen as a holistic individual in there. You're seen as, oh, I like, Latinos are a plus. Dark-skinned people are a plus. Uncut people are a plus. You're seen by, like, these bodily features. Yeah, if you want to yeah, address them. Yeah, I think that's really, truly what it is It is about. And um, I wrote it, too, like, when I mentioned, like, my freshman year, I had a lot of self-discovery, and it was, like, the first time I used apps like Grindr or went out to any type of bar. And I just, like, my first experience right away was instantly, like, are you cut or uncut? Like, that was the first thing that was asked of me. And I was I was confused. I was just like I don't I don't know why any of this matters. <laughs> first of all, and second of all, it's just like like it feels like every interaction I had to go through was like coded in like the first thing that people saw of me, which is being Latino and how my personality didn't matter. Who I was as a person outside of my body doesn't matter. That the only thing that matters when I'm in the space is my body. And there was such a like, co- conflict in my brain about that because outwardly, I also like want other people's bodies. 
um, or I want to look at dick and I want to experience these things, but I understood that like I had to like lose some of myself to do that, which is like very unfortunate, but it was also like the only circumstances I had like being in Iowa um, and Iowa being just such like a white gay location, specifically Iowa City being a very white gay location. I felt trapped within who I, who I am um, and who I was. I guess it's different now. I definitely have outgrown a lot of the things that I was, like, experiencing or at least, like, was able to, like, move on slightly. <laughs> um, but I think that part of me still feels, like, a very similar way of, like, when I enter these spaces, I understand my... I almost understand my place or my position in that, like, I know I'll be sexualized in a way that is separate than, like, other people that will be sexualized when they go out. And it was something that I really struggled with um, and understanding. And I still think I struggle with understanding it, too. And I, I think I made me more defensive. It makes me think about how I navigate relationships. And it also makes me think about, like, how people view me constantly, which is a little frustrating. But I do think that I am growing away from it, too, as well. And I think, I think it's the nature of gay nightlife. But I think the idea of like a genuine queer relationship amongst people just historically has been seen as so perverse and so like unable to happen that sex in the queer community has been as a result of that sex has been like the main way in which queer people have like those sort of relationships with each other like it becomes all about sex it becomes all about the body and then those issues are just like compounded for um, black people, people of color, Latinx people of color in a way that like genuine queer relationships that aren't just about sex can be like really difficult or just there's a lot of layers to it that people got to recognize going into these spaces that just a white gay man doesn't need to like they they can go into those spaces and it can be about just sex and yeah not even mentioning the things with that's true though like i feel like like um the way i navigate like going out is very different from the way white people navigate going out um in regards to even like gay or non-gay clubs like i do like navigate non-gay clubs in a similar way as well like where i'm just like um looking around to see, like, who who would confront me about something, who would do something to me. Um, but also something that I've, like I mentioned, grown past, too. Like, now that I'm in spaces, I just understand, um, I think, the way that I'm received more, um, which is, like, honestly was so healthy for me to get past and, like, was very healthy for me to get to. Um, but I think that when I enter gay spaces, I don't know if that will ever leave because of how how the queer community is um and that specifically being just like white cis white cis skinny bodies and i think like that is just something that i don't know if i'll ever be able to to fit a mold <laughs> uh be able to fit that mold so yeah i did want to talk about last chico next to for sure, for that sure. poem definitely meant a lot to me when i wrote it and still does and it was definitely me understanding I guess my ethnicity and also understanding what it just means to be Latino or Latinx and and Chicanx. I think that I really struggled with my identity 
growing up and not understanding like what position I held within the community. And I think that when I was growing up, like my identity wasn't something that I necessarily talked about just because I think I just existed simply in elementary school. And while I experienced things, I didn't really read it as like racism per se, but I just read it as like an an everyday experience. And shortly after when I got into like middle school and high school, I started to realize like, no, like I'm I know that people are treating me this way because of my ethnicity or people are acting this way because of my ethnicity. But also I wanted to show like the beauty in both of my parents and not necessarily focus on, on, on race or ethnicity, but focus on what they gave me as just parents and how the way that I look is from them, but I'm also my own individual person. And I think that was really, really beautiful for me to write um, and for me to understand that like my parents are both beautiful um but then again like there are also repercussions to that beauty and that being like me being called like slurs like i i mentioned in the poem like being a big wetback and then me coming to terms with, like understand like, i'm not sure exactly what i want to call myself because people have already called me these things and that's why it's i'm a lost you connect right now i think you touched on a lot of what i was thinking while just hearing you read this like you're not demonizing any part of yourself because it because it's all you. You're not shaming the white side of you. You're not like being ashamed of the brown, the Latinx side of you. It's just something that like exists. It's like your experiences, um, it's your identities. And I think the beginning where you're just like describing your parents and your tío and you're just like describing your family and how things are and you are speaking to the beauty of that. But then when people start to put terms to these things, that's when like it starts to get muddled. And I think just in the US, I think we've talked about this, but there's just such a need for people, all sorts of people to be lumped into whatever category. And then when you're trying to, when you're trying to find that out for yourself, as well as, unsolicited comments from other people telling you what you are based on their perception of you. Like you said, you get lost. And in the final uh, stance, you said, I don't know what to call myself. All I know is that I'm a lost chicken ex. And I feel like even that's sort of just the best you can do at that moment. Like maybe chicken ex isn't the best way of saying it because why would you say like you're a lost chicken ex when you don't know where exactly you fall in, but there's just such a pressure to be a word or be like a category that I think is in conflict with people's lived experiences. And why can't people just be as they are and have the experiences that they do and look the certain way they do and have the parents and family that they do? Like, why can't that just happen without the need and the pressure to be have all that lumped into one word that probably isn't going to represent, that will probably never represent your lived experience as a human, is what I'm getting from this. Yeah, yeah. I guess, really, um, I wanted to, like, focus on, on being lost and, like, not necessarily understanding any of the things that you mentioned, like, the labels being put on me or my understanding of, of once again, how people perceived me. 
um, which has changed definitely. And I, like I said, I've grown into like understanding how people perceive me more. But I do think that like, I'm kind of tired of it. Don't perceive me anymore. Like right. don't don't have assumptions. Don't have thoughts. Don't think about it. <laughs> right. And I think that's something that like, I had to also learn myself too to do um, about others. But I think that it's, it's something that's really important right. um, to just not perceive people certain ways, which is like basic basic skills. But right. <laughs> yeah, but I think like we all do it in a way. Just you see someone, you see the way. They look physically, you see the clothes they're wearing, you see what they're doing, like maybe what their occupation is, you see just the way they carry themselves, and you start create creating like mini narratives in your head of what that person's doing, who they are, what their background is, and I think that issue is just like compounded for um, visibly black and POC people that... Um, have just had these stereotypes and these narratives tied to them. And then when people not in those communities see these people just living, just existing, they create these narratives and then they, worse, they might even act on it and that might inform their relationship with them. And yeah, that's why I was getting out of it. Yeah. Um, it's definitely all of that. Um, and more. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, when I, when I, like I mentioned, when I wrote these, I was um, a freshman and I think I was really, really struggling with my identity and understanding being queer and Latino. And I think that's also like, like queer and, and lost in, in this poem could be interchangeable to me. I think like I am a queer chica next and I don't think I knew the language to like, to like express the way, the, express it the way I wanted to at the time. Um, and I don't think it, queer would fit there now either, but I do think that a lot of the lostness stemmed from my queerness as well. And I didn't really speak about it in this poem, but I definitely think that because without it, I was still lost. You know, I still was lost within my ethnicity and understanding that. So I think that like apart from my queerness, I was lost from just my ethnicity, but adding on to my queerness, um, I definitely think that I was even more lost. Like I was more confused about how I fit and then especially if you get into like I think I don't even know the right terms like maybe micro terms um within the queer community like twink bear that um and and I was trying to understand like do I fit any of these and like should I fit any of these and I was struggling with understanding like if I wanted to or not and I think there's honestly real beauty to that struggle there's real beauty to going through a journey of like finding yourself and I think just U.S. society in general really demands us to be not only be really cognizant of all the identities we share, but to like almost be prideful in a way of like those specific labels and categories. But I think there's in resisting that, I think there's real beauty to reclaiming. Okay, I know podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> Bye, Bye, have night. a good night. Honestly, we can keep that in. That was Lynn. Right. Uh, that was Lynn, our icon, who we love dearly. <laughs> She's just giving us a visit. Um, anyway, I think there's some real beauty <laughs> to not knowing and reclaiming that and saying, yeah, maybe I'm still in this journey of self-discovery, of realizing my queerness, of realizing all the various intersections of whatever identities I hold, but there's like 
I'm happy with that, and maybe not happy. I'm content with that, and I don't feel pressured to say that this journey is ended because we're human, and that journey is going to continue. I don't like this preachy stuff. So Alex also has a poem that they're going to read to us, um, but I'll let Alex take it away. Yeah, so this is called That Night. I wrote it this summer. Uh, it basically is about an instance that happened when I was just going out drinking, going out to the clothes with my friends, and this guy was very transphobic to me. And recently, it's really only been this past year where I've started to dress more feminine occasionally, and this was like one of those instances. And this, again, like I said earlier, this way, this poem was just a way of processing what happened um, in a way that I could move on and really understand what I was feeling and put word to put words to what I was feeling. So yeah, I'll read it. It's July and I can feel my back start to sweat. Striding across downtown, white lace blouse, my angel's wings. A tired black skirt I hope no one notices I keep wearing. It's the only one I got, baby. Shit, where's my wallet? Shit, my bulge is showing. I'm one too many drinks in, the lights are spinning. My tight black boots hold their course, turning the corner. Someone's yelling. Who is this fool? He looks my way, laughing. Nah, that's a man. Oh, he's talking about me. I come up to him, start yelling, cussing him out, like I'm some sort of trans chingona. He reminds me of some of my cousins, so I yell even louder. He keeps telling me I'm a man, like it's something I've never heard before. I say, I'll show how much of a man I am when I stick up your culito. Oh, he really doesn't like that. His friends stop him, take him away. Before the situation gets out of hand, I walk away victorious. I'm safe. That's enough. My friends comfort me, pity me. Their faces saying, what a sad little trans life you have, mija. I don't make a fuss. Accepting the attention, I keep on striding. But these are the looks, the violence of looks, of gestures, of bodily reactions and cues, of casual and unconscious dismissals, denials, refusals that keep me wide awake as I'm burned alive in the summer night, wishing I could be one with the stars. Um, I'm also going to plug Alex and say that <laughs> this poem will be published in Zenith Magazine. Um, what day does it come out? I'm not sure. We'll figure out what day the, it comes the out. The upcoming issue of another campus magazine called Zenith. Zenith, yeah. So y'all should for sure check out their poem um, uh, in that magazine as well. I have a lot that I want to say. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I really like how you started the poem with It's July and I can feel my back start to sweat. I just something about that just gives me it, it sets the tone in a way of the poem and it sets like my understanding of of this poem is gonna be hot. It's gonna be kinda sticky. Um and I don't know how else to describe it um outside of that. And I also think that 
you just talk about so many things within this poem, but it's really just one moment. And one line that I also want to point out is, after the situation and you say you walk away victorious, you also say accepting the attention. Um, and I think a lot about that within myself too. And I think that's similar to what I was saying in Lyft is accepting like attention to us that that isn't necessarily like fully good, if that makes sense. But also it's a way for us to to have peace, I think, and to understand the people around us like want to help and do what they can. And like it's nice to feel that, but also they aren't doing exactly what I need um, at the same time. And in general, the Kulita line, beautiful. <laughs> um, I think that that was super amazing and was something that needed to be said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really did say it. This all really did happen. And like I said, it was just a way to make sense of what happened. And when I was like, remembering this while writing it I was I really thought of the things that stuck with me after this was not the initial it was not the man it was not the Latino man like saying those things to me but it was rather like my friends reactions and the way that it was just like so pitiful and so sorrowful for something that maybe in the grand scheme of things was not like a huge deal because like I said like I'm safe that's enough for me personally you know I can get through this instance of transphobia, but like really like just was ingrained with me was my friends' reactions. And they were not trans, mind you, but like maybe this is oversharing. They really laid it on me. And I like just sort of started to fake cry in that instance. <laughs> just because, like you said, like I would rather accept that attention than make a fuss out of it than like say that like leave me alone even if, like Chris, you said, like, it's not the best, it's not really what I needed in that moment, it doesn't really help me in addressing that transphobia, but I was just content with leaving things be and healing from that moment through writing this poem rather than addressing it to my friends at the moment, but... Yeah, yeah another line that I really like, too, that... You're saying this, I'm trying to find it. He reminds me of some of my cousins. And I really like that line because I think about my family as well in relation to my queerness. And just like, it just has me thinking a lot. Um, <laughs> and it has me thinking about how how I might, I might give grace maybe to some of my family members, but they are also doing the same things to other people as well, I believe. And it's just like, where, where do I draw the line? Where do you draw the line of like within family? Um, and like, do I give you any grace when seeing you and maybe you have you don't say these things to me because we're family but I feel like you would say it to other people as well and it's like where do I draw the line with my family and understanding like Latino people do and are perpetuating like transphobia and homophobia so much and I feel like I also really struggle with understanding my family so I think that line really really invoked something in me as well right no I think you hit exactly like what I was trying to get at because when when this was happening he looked like some of my Latino cousins and he was speaking Spanish and exactly like you said like I saw my family in him and I'm like if my cousins were here maybe they wouldn't say what this man is saying to me directly but because I'm just a stranger he feels so open about expressing that transphobia and then it circles back it's like 
how open do maybe some of my male cousins feel in expressing maybe some of the transphobia they have that you said is so inherent within the Latino community. So yeah, I just thought you you really hit what I was trying to get at. Yeah, it's a really beautiful poem, and I think that you cover so much in it, like I said. And I just like keep thinking about like the, the lines of even describing yourself, like my tight black boots hold their course. Um, and you mentioned the skirt as well. You said, a tired black skirt, I hope no one notices I keep wearing. I think those things are like both very, very like raw at their core, specifically like the tired black skirt and understanding that. I don't know. There's like a whole, I guess, like discourse, you could say, of people talking about re-wearing clothing and things like that. Um, but don't understand like why people wear clothing and like why people wearing certain clothes that they are wearing and the meaning that this clothing has. Right. Um, and I also like, like the line, like I said, the black boots holding their course um, and understanding that the, you might be drunk, you might be a little sloppy, but your boots are fine and you're walking. Right. Like you're walking and you're getting through right. the night. <laughs> In response to your first comment, like I just have so few clothes that I like to wear that I see as embodying like my feminine part of myself. And that's one, because I'm a fat bitch, you know, there's not clothes in general for me Two, like, I was not socialized in a way of having feminine clothing, like just presenting, like having your physical appearance be feminine. So it's a very like foreign thing to me. So I really latch on to the small parts of that femininity that I do have, like I said, the one skirt I keep, it's the only skirt I have, the one skirt I keep wearing because I have so few elements that I can identify as like, yes, this is like an embodiment of the feminine part of myself. Um, I just have so few of that that I really latch on to the, the little items I do have. Or for example, my hair, it's very long and it's like one of the few things of my actual body that I see as being feminine and it's like if I shaved it off then I would lose all of it at least that's what I'm saying in my mind and I think that's a very similar experience to trans and non-cis people especially early on when they're still figuring a lot of shit out and to your boots line that was really just about like even though I'm drunk even though I'm messy I'm aware of being like a trans person in this setting like I know what I need to do and, like, when that first, when the guy, like, was starting to say shit to me, like, my immediate reaction was to, like, to defend myself and, like, to fight back in that way. Like, I know what's up. And I think that was also part of why my friend's reaction was so shocking because they kind of treated me like I wasn't a subject in that situation. Like, I didn't know what to do in the face of blatant transphobia. But, um... Yeah, that was just another meaning of the the black boots line. So. It's a lot. It's yeah, a, it's, a, it's a lot. I mean, both of all of our it's poems, a lot. both of our <laughs> poems are a lot, and I think that we cover a lot of things that we experience um, with our identities and how we. I guess, like we mentioned earlier, like how we come to terms and understanding it, and then also like just letting out that pain. It's really truly about letting out the emotions around these situations that have happened to us. And will probably continue to happen to us, you know? And that's, I think, kind of how we... I mentioned, like, our writing. Like, it comes up kind of out of random responses. And I think 
a lot of it is triggered with our daily experiences and and while we'll probably continue writing even though we might not want to or we'll ever consider ourselves poets or writers we'll probably continue to do it anyway because it's like one of our only ways of expressing this identity and even though like the poems maybe read very emotional very sad very like trauma filled i think there's real beauty in these poems existing as they do because like there's a sort of reclamation that has to go on within yourself to write this down on paper because i could have easily said i want to forget about this i don't really want to revisit this instance in that in writing a poem would inevitably oh my god inevitably would but since I wrote this, since I like put it out in the world, I think there's a real beauty to that in reclaiming my experiences, reclaiming the transphobia I experienced. And I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to own this narrative and I'm going to put it to paper. I'm going to create art out of it. And I think there's some real beauty to that in a way that's not... It shouldn't be... When marginal communities like make art, I don't think it should just be limited to pain and trauma and look how sad this is. Look at all the shit they have to go through, um, especially when people within those marginalized stories are telling their own story. I think there's some real, there's real beauty to that. There's real beauty to that, and I think it should be celebrated. Yeah, I think yeah. Going off that, I completely agree in that. Like Alex mentioned, like stem, things can stem from pain, but outwardly when writing it it's it's not pain anymore per se if that makes sense it's more it's more i guess like relief and and honesty with myself but in a way that is like you mentioned beautiful and healing um and less and honestly like a lot of the poems that, that i write like while they could be maybe about pain don't feel painful anymore if that makes sense or like don't right. feel painful even as i'm writing them they don't feel painful anymore um but it's also a way for me to, like, once again, understand. It's more about understanding, I feel like, for me. Okay, well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to another podcast that probably could have been sh- cut very short. <laughs> of Podemos Hablar. There might be future episodes. Please don't count. <laughs> yeah, um, I would not say rely on our word ever. Oh. <laughs> uh. But this was fun. Right. We definitely should do more episodes and maybe maybe share our writing again. Right. I don't know. Um. You can read the poems we shared in the respective magazines. Yep. Um, Zenith Magazine <laughs> and Metal Magazine. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. Go gay people. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye.